was a little worried what was going to happen when Coop came up. Uh, I, I, uh, as, uh, as Dr. Koopa, as we call him in the office, uh, said, we have known each other a long time. I've always said, when I grow up, I want to be Charles Cooper because he's the only person I know that can make God a three-syllable word. God, duh. So, uh, I love you, brother. One of the most encouraging men in my life, honestly. Well, I, I'm really, I'm really honored to be here. It's, uh, it's, uh, your, your reputation, uh, is throughout central Florida. I don't know if you know that or not. I know, I know it's probably elsewhere too, but I hear about Iron Man all throughout, um, central Florida. And so it's great to be with you here this morning to be in this beautiful, um, location and, uh, and to see all you guys, all you guys here. I came to man in the mirror just really briefly, uh, in 2000. Uh, and so I've been there for 22 and a half years. I just really am too afraid to go find another job basically. So it's a tough, it's a tough market. Um, but I, I've loved my time there. I'll tell you a little bit more about how I got there a little bit later on this morning, but I want to tell you just one sort of a really exciting thing that we're doing. And as I look out in this room and I see the, uh, maturity and experience that's represented by many of you in this room it it's even more it's even more something that i want to share so if you wouldn't mind bringing up that website so man in the mirror has been around for 37 years we started out as a bible study in a bar and uh, pat was a commercial real estate developer he got mayhem earlier this year and started doing a, a bible study for uh, his friends basically and very quickly it became evident that pat was an extremely talented bible teacher and so over the next uh, 10 years, 15 years, he started um, um, teaching the Bible study, wrote the book, The Man in the Mirror. It started out as a series in the Bible study and 24 problems that men face. And, and there's uh, millions of copies of The Man in the Mirror in print it all around the country. And in every goodwill that you could ever walk into, you can find a copy of The Man in the Mirror because of this Books by the Box program that we've done that's allowed uh, churches to hand out um, individual copies, boxes and boxes of books. So as we head into the, so Pat's, Pat's been doing this for 37 years and has had a huge impact on my life. And so when Pat started Man in the Mirror, he's this guy that is in his mid to late thirties trying to figure out how to reach his peers. How do I reach these other guys in my generation where we're all, we've all got young families, we've got budding careers. Um, we're, we're not really sure how to live our lives very well. And so how can I reach guys in that stage of life? And the biggest issue that those guys faced back then, I think, was what we would call cultural Christianity, that there were a lot of people in church, but they were going through the motions. And, and, and frankly, you know, back then, I think to be successful in business in many, in many places, especially in the South, you kind of had to be in church. Like if you weren't in church, there was kind of something wrong with you. And so a lot, a lot of men were in church, but they were just going through the motion. They're, they're sitting through the service and serving on a committee and making sure their kids went to Sunday school and like checking the, you know, how many BMWs were in the parking lot because those might be good potential clients for their insurance business, you know? And um, thank you for the one chuckle I got there. Uh, and, um, and so Pat, Pat, I think, speaks incredibly well to, to lukewarm Christian men, like to just, and that's what I was when I came across the man in the mirror. I was just a lukewarm Christian guy going through emotions and reading the man in the mirror 
uh, sparked that fire in my heart and in my soul to real go deeper in my faith. And so here we are now in, 20, in the 2020s, post-COVID, general, the General Social Survey is a survey that they do every year the government does, and they ask all kinds of questions. But one of the big findings in the, in the study that just came out this year is that for the first time, more people never go to church than regularly go to church for the first time ever in the history of the survey. And it's a little bit more than a third of people now say they never go to church and a, and a little bit less than a third said, say they regularly go to church. But do you know how they define regularly? Once a month, once a month. And then there's a, about half of those people go every week. Um, so we're not, I mean, so we got some guys in church that are going through the motions, but mostly COVID took all of those guys out of church. Cause you know, you, you, uh, I don't know about you, but I had a lot of friends and they like watching church on TV, you know, and it's great. You could, you could do it in your, you know, pajamas. I was going to say boxers, but I don't want to visualize any of you guys in boxers. And, uh, and then, but you know, then, uh, you know, so you watch it two, three weeks, I'm going to watch my church on TV and, and then, you know, you miss a week for something and then you go back and then you miss a couple more weeks and then the next thing. So all the, all the cultural Christians have kind of, most of these guys have left the church. And the interesting thing is that the, that the, these young men, we see these young men in the twenties and thirties, I'll call those young men and, um, their rates of anxiety are up, depression, suicide, drug use, all, the, all this stuff is, is going up. And um, so I, don't, I, I think not going to church may not be the answer to the problem. I think not being engaged in community, not being engaged in meaningful relationships may not be the answer that men are looking for. I think what men are looking for, especially the other men, is meaningful relationships come up with. Uh, with older men. And so when we, when we talk to young men, we, we've started at Managing Start asking this question. We'll talk to a young, let's, we've done some focus groups and talk to the other guys and we say, hey, let me ask you a question. <clears throat> whether, and by the way, this is whether or not they go to church. Would, do you think it'd be cool? Like, would you like to have an older man in your life who you could just bounce things off of, walk through decisions that you're making and talk to about issues you might be having in your work or your family or your, marriage and every single guy we have ever asked that question to oh oh yeah uh, absolutely and we say well do you have somebody like that and they say no I, I don't we say well why i don't know where to find it and so then we go to older guys and we say let me ask you a question do you think it's important for you for older men to invest in the lives of younger men do you think it's a good thing especially in the church do you think it's a good a good thing for the mature guys to invest their lives in the younger guys and help them walk through life you know what they all say absolutely and so then we say well are you doing that and then start out out go i saw on the sneakers that the lace of the go and they say no no i'm not doing that and let's say why and they say i don't know what to do and so the younger guys don't know where to find older guys to invest from their lives. And the older guys who think that they should be doing it don't know what to do. And so they're not investing their lives in the younger guy. And so I think that creates a solve of their problem, right? So man in the mirror, this is the next major focus that we're having within this piece. Quit 
older men, with mature Christian men like you to become spiritual fathers, to speak into the lives, to the life of just one younger man. So we're launching this thing fall called 10,000 Spiritual Fathers, a vision is over the next three. To create this with at the way 10,000 older guys to go find younger men. The eighth set of a new water fossils out in the full conversation. Not, not like Bible study, not doctrinal guides, you know, not, not, not spiritual rules, just regular guys asking a regular part a younger guy. And the wealth that I like in this book, and that was in the art. So, veterans are great, teachers are great, coaches are great. But I like the idea of mountain guide. It has to be a like venture and two parents goes and a mountain guide, the mountain guide goes up the mountain. If you're climbing your Mount Everest, you don't want a teacher to give you a book on mountain climbing. You don't want the mentor to tell you about the 20 trips he's taken up Mount Everest and patch out the back and send you on your way. And you don't want a coach who gives you a list of all the skills that you need to acquire and maybe gives you some rope climbing classes. Um, and and so you want somebody that goes with you so that when you're going across the crevasse on the extension ladders that they tie together with rope and they think that's a good way to go across an ice pit. I don't know. That sounds crazy to me. Where's your guide? Or going on hell on with you when it's 30 degrees below zero and a hundred mile an hour away, it's where's your guide? Shivering right next to you. That's what it means to me, spirit to grow along with a younger guy. We need to issue the admin. So, there's a website you can go look at called spiritualfathers.com. I'd really invite you to do that. And we'd love to see men uh, out here in the in this part in West Orange County um, become spiritual fathers and invest in the lives of younger men and walk alongside. So that's just my quick plug, quick eight minute hug. Um, and um, let's get into our study. So let me, I'm going to pray for us again, if you don't mind, just to reset. And then let's talk about David. Uh, the it, King David, not David Hill. Just to clarify, everything is going to be about David today. I'm just thinking when a man goes astray, you know. Uh, let's pray. Father, um, thank you for bringing us together here this morning. Thank you for the the way that you pursued us, that we in our own uh, best human thinking would never desire to have you in our lives and hearts, Lord, but you, you reach past that into our, into our hearts. You draw us to yourself. When we stray, you come after us because we're your children, and that's what a father does. And so, Lord, I pray that you would teach us through your word this morning, that you would, through the power of your spirit, illuminate our hearts and minds, Lord, that you would help us to see the love of Christ uh, in our uh, difficulties in you know, Lord, that through that you would draw us to a deeper and more meaningful relationship with Jesus. So y'all, we're walking, we're walking through this year, right? How God makes men. And so this this month we're talking about David and the principle of correction, how God rescues men when they go astray. And David, David's an amazing character in the Bible. It's crazy to like you could spend a year just talking about David. So when you think about David, what do you think about? What are some of the things you think about when you think about David? 
loud. The leader, Psalms, good. He was handsome, okay. Goliath, yeah, some great stories, right? David and Goliath. Chosen by God, Bathsheba, that's where we're going to spend a lot of time talking about this morning. A failure as a father, right? Do you know how many of his five sons, do you know how many, he had five sons, I just, shoot, I just messed up my own play. He had five sons, or he had five, he had four, he had four sons and, and, a, and a fifth um, baby, uh, and then and then daughters, and probably more than that. But the ones that they talk about in the Bible, you know how many of those died? Four, four out of the five, right? And some of them killed each other. Awesome, right? Yeah, David was not David was not a great father. If you look at Second Kings, there's actually a verse about that. And he just didn't intercede in their lives and just sort of ignored them. All right. Anything else? You're the man. Yeah, you are that man. So David, David is the source of the Davidic covenant. Because of David, God made a promise to David that a descendant of David would always be on the throne. David was a man after God's own heart. So yeah, he had all these, he had, he had some heroic parts of his life and he had some tremendously flawed parts of his life. But God uses flawed men. He does not rely on perfect men. Praise the Lord. He doesn't rely on perfect men to accomplish his purposes. He uses flawed men to accomplish his purposes. And David is a great example of that. And, and, and I just, I don't, I don't think sometimes I think we lose sight of what the immenseness of David's influence theologically on us because of this covenant promise that God gave to David that your descendant will always be on the throne. And so when Jesus comes, it's incredible. Why are those genealogies important at the beginning of Matthew or Luke? Because they show that Jesus fulfills a Davidic covenant. He is a descendant of David. He is on the throne. Well, I got one, ain't that? No, I got seven. He is, Jesus is on the throne today. Amen. All right. So turn, if you have a Bible, turn to 2 Samuel Second uh, Samuel chapter 11. You all have a Bible because you all have a phone. So turn to 2 Samuel. And um, we got, we're going to cover some pretty, some uh, a, a lot of ground here in the next five or six minutes, sort of scripturally. So um, the first thing I want to talk to you about is what I call the cascade effect, the cascade effect. So in 2 Samuel 11, I'm going to start reading, and you tell me when you hear the problem, all right? Just shout out when you hear the problem. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained at Jerusalem. Thank you. Right there. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David remained at Jerusalem. Now, I don't know why. I think he's just Eric. I think he's just like, you know what? I've gone to battle so many times. I mean, just read, read everything that's happened before this. Like, I'm, I'm regularly kicking butt and taking minutes. So this year, I'm going to send my mighty men out. They've got it. They can handle it. I'm going to delegate. And so he sent them out into battle. He did not go with them. Verse 2, it happened late one afternoon, which would be dusk. If you look that way, it turns out late one afternoon. David arose from his couch and walked him over his house and saw from the roof of one David, the woman, Peregi. Yeah. David, you trust me, everything from here on is crossed. You can stop calling him out. David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him. 
and he lay with her. A little side note here. I, I love how in the in the Eastern in the Western culture that we live in, what we read is um, he said for her, and he lay with her. But we leave out that little part about she came to him. Like that shows that she had agency in this too. Just just a little side note here. Like Bathsheba had agency here. She was not like some damsel that the king plucked. Uh, she she participated in this. And it's funny in Eastern cultures they focus more on the she came to him than they do on the uh, that he um, set for her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sat and told David, "I am pregnant." So a couple quick things. David is bored, right? He's lazy, and he's walking on the rooftops at dusk. Why does the why does the author give us that specific piece of information? Because all the bathtubs were on the roof, and the king's palace would be at the highest point in the city. And so if you want to have a good chance of seeing a naked woman in these times, you walk on the rooftop at the highest point in the city at dusk because the women would go up at dusk because they want to be up there in the daytime where they might be seen, but late at night you couldn't see what you were doing, so they would go up at dusk. They could take a bath with just enough light to see. And David took advantage of the situation. And he went where he wasn't supposed, he was where he wasn't supposed to be. And he looked at what he wasn't supposed to see. And he fell into sin. And so the rooftop at dusk is like, is like your phone on privacy mode. And nobody really knows what, you know, nobody knows what you're putting. And you, and you click to the next thing and you click to the next thing and you click to the next thing and, and type in a few words and you end up where you're not supposed to be, doing what you're not supposed to do, seeing what you're not supposed to see, and it leads you into sin. This is what happened with David. So what's the cascade effect? He made, he made one kind of, I mean, it's kind of actually a big decision, but one in the, in the sense of the story, one little decision, and that decision was to stay home. And how many times do we as men make a little decision that leads to another situation or another circumstance at least to another little decision that leads to another little decision. And the next thing you know, you're calling the woman down the street to come see you so you can have sex with her. That's basically what happens in this story. So how do you avoid the cascade effect? I love, I love 1 Corinthians 16, 13, and 14 is one of my favorite passages. It says, be on your guard, stand firm in the faith, be men of courage, be strong, do everything in love. But it starts with be on your guard. And so how do you stop the cascade effect? You have to be on your guard. You have to be vigilant. And the story from here just gets worse. In verses 6 through 13, David calls Uriah back and tries to get him to go sleep with his wife so that the baby will look like it's Uriah's baby. He does everything he can. He even gets Uriah drunk. And Uriah is still such a noble man of integrity that he says, look, my soldiers that I command, they're out in battle. They're out in camp, in the military camp. They don't have access to their wives. I'm not, I'm not taking advantage of that. I'm not, I'm not doing it. It's not right for me to do that. If my guys can't be with their wives, I'm not going to be with my wife. So then David's like, well, I'll go to plan B. And plan B is to put them on the front lines. And in verses 14 to 17, he does exactly that and he gets killed. And then in verses 18 to 25, you see David is a cold-hearted snake. The way they, they, they know that if they lose the battle, 
that as long as Uriah gets killed, everything's going to be okay. And at the end of that passage, David says, Thus shall you say to Joab, who is the commander who got Uriah killed, do not let this matter displease you, this, this um, defeat in battle, for the sword devours now one and now another. These things happen. You lost the battle, these things happen. Why am I so lackadaisical about it? Because my real purpose got accomplished. You got Uriah killed for me. And he actually says, encourage him. Go back and encourage him. That's just cold. That's just cold. They lost men in battle, and David doesn't seem to care. And then in verses 26 and 27, uh, Bathsheba mourns Uriah's death, and then she, and then she marries David. So then you, have, then you have chapter 12. So let me read the first few verses of chapter 12. The Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. So you have Nathan, David's prophet. It's like his closest advisor. And uh, Nathan's telling him this story. Can you imagine? It would be kind of weird. Hey, 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 you know, yo, king, I knew this, this guy that had this lamb. It was so cute. Oh, out with the family and they fed it from the table and it was like a daughter to him and all of us would be like rolling our eyes it's like it's a lamb and dirty and and stinky right but he paints this picture of this sort of treasured pet in the family verse four now there came a traveler to the rich man and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him but he took the poor man's lamb and he prepared it for the man who had come to him so just so you know, prepared it and killed it and cooked it, okay? And then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, this man who has done this deserves to die over a land. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. And then Nathan, Nathan said to David altogether, you are the man. You are the man. And um, David's just cut to the heart. You know, he realizes what he's done. And so Nathan says, this is the penalty. This is the penalty for what you've done. You're going to, your wives are going to be taken from you publicly. You're, there's always going to be violence in your household. And he even says like, after all God's done for you, and if you had just asked, God would have done even more. This is what you do. These are the consequences that you're going to face. And so you see this in the history. All of David's sons, almost all of David's sons rebelled. One son raped his, uh, David's daughter. I mean, you have to look at it that way. Raped his sister. Um, they killed each other. I mean, it was, it's a terrible, terrible family story. But we end up with Solomon. We end up with Solomon. Even Solomon has issues later in his life. And then in verses 13 to 15, we see this. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And David and Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You took this man's wife, you had him murder, and the Lord has put away your sin. Gentlemen, no, but I thought that I'm guessing at worse than killer. The Lord put away that sin. But here's the rub. 
The Lord has also put away your sin, and you shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly spared the Lord, the child who is born and shall die. And then neither. Just drop the mic and went over, let David just stew in this. And that and that's what happens. The baby's born and in done and dies. So what's the what's the lesson? What's the cascade effect lesson here? What decisions are you making that can lead to decisions that can lead to devastation and tragedy and sinning and heartache and brokenness? And guys, I'm just telling you that if you're making decisions like that, stop. If you're if you're going where you're not supposed to be, don't go there. I know this like I know we're supposed to be out of grace and 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 Jesus and like, yeah, but stop. Stop it. Like if you know you're doing something that's breathing the Lord, if you know you're doing something that's hurting others, if you know you're doing something that's gonna lead to pain and brokenness in your own life, like don't be a dog that goes back to his vomit. Stop. And be restored. What what are the little decisions that you're making in your life? In my life, I'll tell you the little decisions that I made in my life. So in the late 90s, I launched or in the late 90s, I had a software company. And I was traveling all the time. And so we're at late 98, uh, early 99, somewhere in there. And um, and the company starts growing. We're 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 going like gangbusters. We get venture capital, any venture capitalists in the room. Good vulture capitalists got involved, and uh, you know, just pushing us grow, 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 grow. So we grew from 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 me and three friends to thirty six employees in a little over a year. Bought our largest competitor. Like we were going like a much, and then um, in uh, in ninety nine, I I had another I had another business trip. I was co- I was constantly going on trips. You know, we did a million dollars our sale in sales our first year. We had one salesperson. Because I was just going, just going, going, going everywhere I could go. Plus, the software is expensive, so that makes it to get by down though. But um, so we, uh, so I'm calling my, I call my wife one day, and I'm like, "Honey, I'm really sorry, but I got another, I got another business trip. I got to leave tomorrow." But this, this great deal in Texas, you know, I'm trying to sell her. And uh, my wife said a phrase to me that changed my life. She said, "That's okay. It's easier when you're not here." And I. <laughs> Okay, hung the phone up. I got home that night. I'm like, "What do you mean it's easier when I'm not here?" But she said, "Look, I get it. You're trying to build a company. No, but you're gone all the time. I mean, you 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 go to work oftentimes before the kids wake up. You call me at five o'clock, five thirty. Say you're just going to finish finish up one last thing. They'll be home in a little while. We live thirty minutes from the office, and you walk in at eight thirty or nine o'clock. It's just one more thing. The kids are already in bed. Like they hardly even know." When you are home, you're grumpy because you're exhausted. And the only time we have good conversations is when you're a thousand miles away at a hotel room somewhere. It's 10 o'clock at night, the kids are in bed, and we could talk on the phone. So don't worry about it. We're fine. Any young guys in the room, any young married guys in the room, we're fine is just about the worst thing your wife can say to you, okay? Fine is freaked out, insecure, neurotic, and emotional. So I didn't know what to do. So I went to Texas, you know? And so long about that time, a buddy called me from church. I was going to church, by the way. I was going to church. My wife and I were so involved that there were, we were at a 
little church over in Longwood that had seven services a weekend at that point when we were doing children's ministry, all seven services. So I would, I would be home on the weekend and I, 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 would, I would leave on Monday morning and I would go, I would like abandon my family for the week. And then I would rush home for the weekend so I could minister to other people's kids. And then I would abandon my family again for the week. And walking into church, we looked great. We looked perfect. Like entrepreneur, software company, pretty wife, couple of, couple of toe-headed kids. You know, everybody's walking into church. They don't know the fight we had in the car on the way over. They don't know that my wife feels like a single mom. They don't know the resentment that's building up in her heart and the, and the sort of hardening that's happening to my heart as I'm trying to build this company for her. Doesn't she know that? I want her to live in a nice house, right? And, um, and so a friend of mine called me up and he said, hey, our wives are in a small group together. I said, yeah, I know. And he said, I'm, uh, I think we should get the husbands together for no other reason than just to protect ourselves because I'm pretty sure they're talking about us. And I said, I'm pretty sure they are too, because I'd heard stories about him from my wife. And um, beware of your wife in a small group. And, um, and I'm like, yeah, man, that's great. What are we going to, I grew up in the church. I'm like, what are we going to do? We got to study something. And he said, I don't know, they gave some book away in church a few weeks ago for men. Just bring that book. So I go find the book. The book's The Man in the Mirror. I still have that book, that actual book. And so I'm like, all right, so I, so I get the book and I read the first chapter, Living an Unexamined Life. I read the second chapter, The Rat Race. I read the third chapter. Are you a cultural Christian or a biblical Christian? Now I'm a little upset. Like the guy wrote a book about me, right? It's like my memoir on this, on this page. And so I get into this group with these guys and it changed my life. A couple, a couple things happened all at the same time. One, the, um, I'm reading this book with these guys. Um, and the stock market crashed. The tech market crashed in the first quarter of 2000. All the venture capitalists basically just disappeared. I mean, I mean, up in vape, like I think literally basins do exist too. Like it was just gone. All the venture that was poised to come in. And we had grown the company to 36 employees, but we had mostly done it with debt. So here we are, and I'm, I'm, trying, to, I'm trying to keep this company afloat. And it's, and it's getting harder and harder and harder. And I'm in this group with these guys. And one day I called my wife and I said, I said, honey, I'm not going to go to group tonight. I'm just so exhausted. I'm so weary. And she said, don't, don't come home. Go, go to the group. This is when you need those guys the most. We'll, we're okay. We'll be here when you get here. But you have no idea how much better of a husband and father you've been since you started going to that group. So, so go, go be with the guys and we'll see you when we get home. Said yes, ma'am. So, what was the cascade effect for me? Well, I just decided that I was going to build this company. I mean, it's a, ser a small, a series of small decisions and lots of encouragement from other people who I really respected, telling me that this was a good thing to do. And I made, you know, should I go on this trip? Should I go on that trip? Well, I need to go on this trip. Well, I need to go on that trip. And so I just kept making these decisions that pulled me farther and farther and farther away from my family. I kept deciding that the things that the things that were the most important that I had to do those things. And so it led me to this place. And so um, those guys getting into my life, praying with me, holding me accountable is what changed everything. So let me tell you about the restoration cycle that you can find that David found as well. 
So the first step, the first step of the restoration cycle is conviction. Do you, are you convicted? Do you know you're making bad decisions? For David, it was Nathan talking about a little lamb. For me, it was my wife saying, it's okay. It's easier when you're not here. So the first step is conviction. Conviction comes through the Holy Spirit. John 16, 7 to 9, Jesus talks about, I have to go away so the Holy Spirit can come. And the Holy Spirit's, one of the Holy Spirit's job is to convict you. It's exactly what Jesus said. It comes through God's word. The word of God is sharper than a two-edged sword. It cuts to the marrow of the bone, Hebrews 4.12 says. And then finally, you need brothers. You need brothers to get to the point of conviction. You need guys that can hold the mirror up to you, that can tell you you're being an idiot right now. You're sinning against God. You're sinning against your family. The wounds of a friend are faithful, Proverbs 27 says. So conviction then leads to repentance. David's repentance is heartfelt. He says, I've, I've sinned against God. I, heard, I said this guy deserves to die. I deserve to die. And repentance leads to forgiveness. If you want to read about David's repentance, go to Psalm 51. That whole psalm is actually written in the, in the, as a response to Nathan telling him, you have sinned against God. Read Psalm 51. For me, my, my uh, repentance led to me having this go to counseling with my wife. How many of you love the idea of going to marriage counseling? Yeah. The three enlightened ones of you have raised your hand. All the rest of us are still Neanderthals. And I got to tell you, you know, it was the best thing that ever happened to me. It was going to counseling with my wife. I'll tell you, one of the, one of the nice things was I found that it wasn't all my fault. I mean, mostly my fault, but not all my fault. So that was great. So you need, to, you need to be convicted. You need to have repentance. Repentance leads to forgiveness. But here's the problem with forgiveness that we think sometimes. We think forgiveness means the slate is clean. I've been, everything's fine. Everything's back to the way it was. And, and in, in, stand, in your standing with God, that's true. But in the earthly sense, there are still consequences to your actions. You can be forgiven, but you will still suffer the consequences. I still, I still, still to this day, 23 years later, I give my wife veto power over my travel schedule. It's a consequence of me traveling so much back then as I have to, even today, say, is this trip okay? David's consequences were high. He, he just had devastation in his family. So don't think that forgiveness means no consequences. You have to deal with the consequences. And then, and then the final step is to guard your heart. You know the definition of insanity? Do the same thing over and over again, expect a different result. You have to guard your heart. You have to be intentional about putting those guardrails up that will keep you from getting in that situation again. For me, when I told the guys what was happening in my small group, they asked me every, probably every two or three weeks, they would say, get your, get your, um, calendar out. We want to see your travel schedule. And they held me accountable. You know, and whenever I went to counseling, they would ask me, hey, how'd it go? Did you go? You didn't blow it off, did you? I had accountability. You have to guard your heart, build those things into your life that will protect you. And so, guys, this is, this is my challenge to you. Like, figure out, are there, are there things that are going to trip off the cascade effect in your life? And are you willing to engage in a restoration cycle? Are you willing to be convicted? Are you willing to, to repent? Are you willing to pay the consequences? Are you willing to, uh, to guard your heart so that you can avoid this thing in the future, so that you can live a life that glorifies 
about. That's what leads to a life, an right relationship with God and the right relationship with the people on the Guys, this is the message that young men also need to hear from us guys with some experience. They need, to, they need somebody like us to step into their lives and say, hey, I know that seems like a little decision that you're making right now, but I've been around a little while, and I don't know what that little decision's going to lead to. I know the next one, the next compromise you're going to make, and the next compromise you're going to make, and the next compromise you're going to make. And you know why I know that? Because I've made those compromises. I've screwed up, and you don't have to screw up like I do. And I know there's a lot of guys that tell me, well, if you knew what my life is like, you would never want me to be a spiritual father. And I'm like, man, if you are broken and sinful, please, you're the exact guy we need to be a spiritual father. Because you know the consequences. You paid the price so that a younger man doesn't practice. So let me, let me pray for us. And, uh, and we'll stop. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the life of David. For we know there's many parts of his life that we could study this his cascade effect that he had this time where he was where he wasn't supposed to be Lord not doing what you assigned him to do as a king but rather uh, lounging around and um, Lord we all have those times in our life where we're not supposed to be when we're aware we're not supposed to be would you save us from ourselves Lord would you convict us would you help us to set those guardrails in our lives and in our hearts so that we could always glorify you and so that we could tell others how to Bye, you know, in Jesus.